Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 203, Shanghai, The Dominance of Japanese Air and Sea Power. Last time, the Japanese Expeditionary Force had successfully landed to the northwest of Shanghai Center. General Zhang, Chiang Kai-shek's commander on the scene, had plenty of men, with more coming but the fighting quality of those troops was not sufficient to repel the amphibious landings. By sunrise of August 23rd, the Japanese 3rd and 11th Infantry Divisions were well entrenched and widening their holds. As such, they were now the larger threat, as opposed to the enemy marines stationed within the main harbor. To get a better idea of what was before him, General Zhang commandeered a bicycle, from one of his privates, and rode to Jiawan in north-central Shanghai. He was now closer to the Japanese 11th Division's position and hoped to use his proximity to glean a more accurate picture. And now that he knew of the second enemy landing at Wusong, located to the southeast of Chuan Shako by some 6 miles, or 9.5 kilometers, where Chang was focused on, the general deduced that the town of Laodian, with its vital roads that connected it to the rail lines in between the two landings, but a bit to the west, had to be their next target. As such, his 11th Infantry, which had just arrived on the scene, was ordered to make for that small town. But what the 11th's advanced unit would find was that the Japanese 11th had already sent its own small detachment to the area and had taken it without a shot fired. Though it was the afternoon and the Chinese troops were tired, Chang's men launched their own counterattack and retook the town center within an hour. Once again, the roads to the west and south of Luodian were in safe hands. However, a large counterattacking Japanese force, supported by tanks, was soon en route. When the German general Falkenhausen heard of this contested area, he wrote, Luodian is the most crucial strategic point at the moment. The approaching Japanese troops, with tanks and artillery, first secured their right flank to the north of Liaodiang. This would ensure that no Chinese forces could come from that direction, but it also told the Chinese defenders that a large force was coming. As they had heard the tanks and the guns in the distance, the Chinese 11th knew they couldn't stand up to this firepower, once the Japanese got their large guns in place, so sent men up the road towards the coming attackers, 
ambush units were sent up to harass the approaching enemy. The Chinese were able to surprise the Japanese and inflict some casualties, but they couldn't stop the advance. The small Chinese units attacked and then fell back, with the Japanese troops right behind them and angry. The Japanese 11th came at Liao Dian in three columns, each one having its own tanks and guns for support. Their numbers and firepower gained them entry into the town, but the fight was not yet over. The Chinese, having been pushed deeper into the town, gathered all available forces within Liao Dian and counterattacked. Intense street fighting followed, which lasted past sunset. The darkness negated the Japanese tanks and guns. The clash quickly became a battle of attrition, which benefited the defenders. Further, the Chinese knew the town well, and Falkenhausen had made sure his charges had practiced urban warfare. Late into the night, the Japanese pulled out due to their inability to secure their position for a second time. The price for this failure was high, with many bodies being left behind, as well as three tanks, now on fire. The Chinese 11th, though exhausted, were elated and continued to follow and harass the Japanese soldiers as they retreated. As for the Japanese troops that landed at Wusan, it was up to the Chinese regiment that was stationed just five miles south of them at Jiawan to deal with them. This unit had itself just arrived in Shanghai two days earlier, on August 21st, after a 200-mile journey from Nanjing. But the last part of their journey had to be covered on foot, as the Japanese completely controlled the skies, which made train travel precarious. This regiment marched, in perfect order due to their intense German training, towards Wusan. But just before reaching the enemy, a Japanese aircraft dropped a bomb in the midst of the formation. Many Chinese soldiers were killed instantly, with most of those losing arms and or legs. Right away, the regimental commander yelled for the platoons to spread out and make their way to the enemy individually. Once they were within rifle range of the enemy line, the platoons split into squads. Those squads that took the lead were the first to get into position and began the contest with small arms fire. Yet this was merely a distraction. Battalion Commander Chen Shiquan picked two companies and planned to lead a charge. The bugler sounded off and the men rose and began to run. Yet the horn gave away their position, and one Japanese observer called in their location to the nearby warships. Soon, within minutes, shells started raining down on the men as they ran and where they had been hiding just a few minutes before. Now they were trapped in no man's land. Further, soon bombers were flying over their heads, adding to their misery. As for the charge, that was over. Now the order of the day was simply survival. Each squad, no, each man, hid as fast as he could or dug a trench, just enough to hide his body from the enemy observers or riflemen. One Chinese soldier would later write, It seemed as if the enemy could see everything, but it was important not to act rashly. There was no other choice, really, but to take cover in a hole or behind a ridge. The attack on the Japanese at Wusan had come to a halt, 
even before it started. This withering fire went on until dark. Only then could the Chinese troops that survived get up and move around. Many used the respite to get a bite to eat and take in some water, and some of those used the cover of night to get in closer to the enemy line. These were most likely the graduates of the Central Military Academy, where courage was valued along with level-headedness. However, that courage could not alter what had just happened. One regiment of 44 men were down to just 16 as the sun set. The Battle of Shanghai was quickly slipping out of Chinese control. General Zhang made repeated statements to the press of what his army was about to do to the invaders. But when no action followed, Chang became worried about the sickly general. Deputy War Minister Chen Chang advised an all-out attack on the two landings of enemy troops. Chiang Kai-shek wondered if Chen, like Chang, was merely making bold statements from the safety of his office. Still, if he replaced Chang with Chen, what was there to lose? At worst, Chang would have the same situation on his hands. At best, the deputy war minister might be able to push the enemy back into the Yangtze River. Yet Chang was not ready to humiliate the poet-soldier Chang. Instead, he put Chen in charge of the 15th Army Group that comprised his left wing in this fight. The exhausted Chang, he had not slept sufficiently for a week, realized that he was about to lose his command, so left the front and made for Su's Ho a few miles northwest of his current position, at the 3rd War Zone headquarters. There, he put in a call to Chang in Nanjing, but the chairman exploded on his end before Chang could ask any questions about his future. What are you doing in Suzhou? Chang screamed. Then, because of his fatigue, Chang spoke harshly to his superior, a most disrespectful act. Chang hung up the phone. By now, as Chang returned to the front, his commanders under him had become despondent. They were all tired as well, and knew they had failed, with allowing the Japanese to lend more men, which gave support to the Marines, who should have been pushed back early on. But now the Chinese were threatened with a pincer movement from the two Japanese forces. It only got worse for Chang when Chen arrived at Suzhou on August 24th, acting as if he were already in overall charge. Chen demanded a situation report, countermanded several orders from some of the other commanders, and then ordered more units from Shanghai proper to the coast area. He would carry on with Chang's orders to repulse the enemy, but would do it more robustly with fresh troops. The rest of August 24th was spent trying to figure out whose example the men would follow, the determined Chen or the spent Chang. That night, a meeting was held to determine how best to crush the Japanese. Falkenhausen put forth a plan that as many troops as possible should be sent to the Liaodian area, as they still controlled it and could use it as a jump-off point to hit the enemy. If this could be achieved, then the pressure could be taken off the defenders and their enthusiasm might be rekindled. The assembly agreed. 
However, as the sun rose on August 25th, it seemed to burn off the zeal that had been created the night before, during the meeting. The reinforcements were on their way to Lodien, but the Japanese were equally busy reinforcing their foothold at Chang Shako, to the north of Liaodiang, by some five miles. What's more, the Japanese, with their professionalism, had already lined up tanks and men at the riverbank to protect their disembarked. Their engineers were constructing a pier to speed up the unloading of even more men and equipment. And they were also constructing a road that could handle sending many men, tanks, and guns further inland. As August 25th showed no real improvement in pushing the enemy back, Falkenhausen reassessed the situation and reported to Chiang Kai-shek. It should be noted that the enemy's army and navy act in close coordination. Even though his land-based artillery is still weak, this is compensated for by strong naval artillery and ship-based aircraft. His report ended, as a result, the main operations on our side should be carried out after dark. And that's what the Chinese defenders would do. Hold up during the day, survive the naval and aerial bombardments as best they could, then move out at night to engage the enemy. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Ironically, Luo Dieng also became the Japanese main target. But as they did not have enough men to take the town, certainly with the enlarging Chinese force there, the infantry waited as their bombers and naval guns softened up the target city. At the center of the town was the Chinese 11th Division that had pushed out the invaders on August 23rd. But the men of the 11th knew that when the enemy came, it would be as a tidal wave of steel and muscle. And yet, this is not how the Japanese 11th saw things. Their landing had been textbook, their initial reinforcements right on schedule. But now, with more men on shore, there seemed to be an issue with getting enough supplies delivered each day. By the time of Chen's and Falkenhausen's meeting of late August 24th, the Japanese 11th had started living off the land. Small detachments would be sent further inland, and the men would take whatever food or valuables they could find. They would also murder every citizen they came across. By the time one young boy dug himself out from under his dead parents, there was only one other person left alive in the village. Together, they escaped. On that same day of August 24th, only some 80% of the second wave of men had been landed, clearly not enough to launch a tidal wave of steel and muscle at Luodian. Turns out that that part of the Yangtze River, where the Japanese 11th was, was shallow and was only deep enough for naval craft for a few hours each morning 
Hence, the massive attack that should have come from the Japanese was slowed and weakened. The other major issue holding back the Japanese was the number of dead versus the number of men newly disembarked. The attackers were coming at Luodiang, but there was always more enemy troops waiting for them. The Japanese never seemed able to enter the town in force, much less take it outright. Just two days after landing, the Japanese 11th Division had lost 400 men. That number would not only grow, but would continue to grow at a faster rate. Soon, they could not dispose of the bodies fast enough, according to the Japanese tradition of cremation. Soon, every private and even the junior officers had to be just placed in a hastily dug hole. News of this spread among the troops, and morale suffered. The best news that the 11th had was that more and more warships were entering their harbor. Also, more bombers and fighters were coming in. On August 26th, the invaders' air force flew 16 sorties. The next day, it was 29 sorties. The day after that, it was 68 sorties. These air raids, along with the increased shelling, gave the Japanese a chance to rest and wait for more men and material to be brought on shore. Finally, on August 28th, the Japanese launched their assault. The 3rd Division was about to leave their confines of Wusong and push inland by some four miles and take the village of Yigang. Previously held by the Chinese, it had made landing more men a hazard, as guns from that village had shelled those coming ashore. But now it was in Japanese hands, which threatened the area to the south and southeast of Liaotiang. On that same day, the Japanese 11th Division charged towards Liaotiang after a massive naval bombardment that had gone on for hours. The attack was led by Wanchi Takachi, a regimental commander. He personally cut down the first few defenders he came upon with his sword. This seemed to break the spirit of the defenders as they were pushed out of the town by noon. But if the victors thought their troubles were over concerning the town, they were wrong. When Chang at headquarters heard of this, Falkenhausen urged him to counterattack, overwhelmingly so. The town, located further inland than any other Japanese possession, had to be retaken, or else the Chinese would have to alter their entire position to one of being on the defensive. And as Falkenhausen had told Chen, that would be the beginning of the end for Shanghai. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.